If you love Jesus, you love what Jesus loves. I love my dear wife, and if someone says, Jonathan, I love you, but I just hate Christina. Well, I would not feel loved by that. How could you hate Christina? She's lovely. And so when you're, when you're so close to someone, when they are honored or applauded or loved, then you feel honored, applauded, and loved. See, if you love me, you love what I love. Now, I love the Steelers, uh, but you're free to hate the Steelers, and we can still love each other and get along. But considering my wife and I are one flesh and I hold fast to her, to not love her is to not love me. Uh, Jesus loves what is true, right, and good. So it is even truer that if you love Jesus, you love what Jesus loves. And friends, Jesus loves Scripture. Jesus loves the Old Testament, the New Testament. He loves God's law, God's gospel, God's promises, precepts, commandments, decrees, decisions, and judgments. Jesus loves God's Word because Jesus loves God who breathed it out. So to say that you love Jesus, but to belittle or undermine or doubt or ignore his word is to not really love Jesus, at least as you should. Husbands, how many of you would feel loved and honored if your, uh, you wrote your wife a love letter, one that, that really expressed the depths of your affection, and she read it and she smiled and she responded, honey, I deeply love you, I just don't believe you. Well, that would hurt. That would hurt. That'd be reason to sit down and have some coffee and a very long conversation and a serious talk. Your letter is not you, but, but it is you. So to not accept the love letter is really not to accept you. Scripture is not God. But it is the certain word of God, the self-revelation of God. So to love and trust Jesus is to love and trust Scripture as well. Verses 17 through 20 say more than we can handle in one sermon. Jesus, he shares his view of the Old Testament. He teaches how to think about Old Testament Scripture, really all of Scripture, how to read it, how to interpret it. And two big takeaways emerge. Number one, Jesus is entirely confident in Scripture. And two, Jesus presents himself as the fulfillment of Scripture. What Jesus told his disciples in verses 17 through 20 should really fortify our confidence in Scripture and deepen our comfort in God's truth. Some professing Christians would like to unhitch the Christian faith from the Old Testament or unhitch the law from the gospel and simply focus on the gospel and New Testament living, but Jesus doesn't allow any room for that. Let's begin here. Jesus did not come to abolish any part of Scripture. Jesus says in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. So he, he taught his disciples what not to think and then what to think. When Jesus said the law or the prophets, his disciples understood him to mean the 39 books of the Old Testament. 
The law often referred to the Pentateuch or Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the prophets referred to the rest of the Old Testament books. However, sometimes simply the law referred to all of Scripture as verse 18 in our text today shows us. This is clearly the case as various New Testament passages confirm Jesus was speaking of the Hebrew Scriptures. Essentially, Jesus was telling them, do not think that I have come to abolish any Old Testament scripture. Jesus was was not teaching something entirely new, but was rightly teaching and fulfilling that which was old. We could say a reformation of sorts. The disciples were not to think that he showed up to destroy scripture in order to supplant it with entirely new doctrine. And saying that, teaching that to his disciples, countered uh, what was a a fast-approaching accusation from the Jewish leaders. John Calvin said this, while he invites and exhorts the Jews to receive the gospel, he still retains them in obedience to the law. And on the other hand, he boldly refutes the base reproaches and slanders by which his enemies labored to make his preaching infamous or suspected, end of quote. And I agree with Calvin. The Jewish religious leaders would eventually accuse Jesus of blasphemy and heresy. However, Jesus is the distinguished and authoritative teacher who truly understands the law and the prophets. Jesus' preaching, the Sermon on the Mount included, could be somehow twisted and misconstrued as supplanting the law with new teaching, which wasn't the case. Instead, he rightly expounded the law and the prophets, exposing the faulty interpretations of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus was setting the record straight from the very beginning, saying, as one translation puts it, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Quick application. Nothing in the Bible justifies antinomianism. Now, I've used that term a lot. Here's what it means again. Anti-lawism. It's a person who maintains that Christians are freed from the moral law by virtue of grace as set forth in the gospel. Jesus' arrival and teaching didn't make God's law irrelevant. The law still applies, certainly not as a means of justification, never as a means of justification, but as means of knowing our sin and knowing our guilt and clear instruction on living a grateful life. Twice Jesus mentioned his coming Uh, This implied his divinity, his eternal existence, his incarnation. Many times Jesus used the phrase, I came. In, In John 8, 42, Jesus said to obstinate Jews, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. God the Father sent God the Son to come to earth, but not to abolish Scripture. The Greek word for abolish, kataluo, was used later in Matthew in reference to the destruction of the temple. Why would Jesus come to destroy God's steadfast covenants and promises and commandments? That would be very, very odd. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, is there any part of Scripture that you belittle or undermine or doubt 
or ignore for any reason. If so, you need to repent, for Jesus embraced every last word of it. Brothers and sisters, the law and the prophets speak of Jesus Christ, and they help us understand the gospel and what God requires of us. The existence of the New Testament after the resurrection of Christ does not uh, it, it does, does not cancel out or render the Old Testament obsolete. It's an essential part of the redemption story. Jesus did not unhitch the Old Testament from himself or God's beautiful story of redemption. He only strengthened Scripture's ongoing relevance for our lives. Jesus didn't abolish the law or the prophets. They remain relevant testimonies to Jesus Christ and the Christian life. Second, Jesus came to fulfill all of Scripture. He first told them what not to think, then what to think. Verse 17 again, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Not abolishment, fulfillment. The Greek word for fulfill is plerao. Matthew used plerao six times before this, before verse 17. Five times plerao refers to Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. One study Bible explains plerao like this. As in Matthew's earlier use of prophecies, fulfill means to complete an intended purpose. To complete an intended purpose. Another study Bible nailed it, saying it this way. Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament in that it all points to him. Not only in its specific predictions of a Messiah, but also in its sacrificial system, which looked forward to his great sacrifice of himself. In many events in the history of Israel, which foreshadowed his life as God's true son. In the laws which only he obeyed Uh, perfectly obeyed, and in the wisdom literature which sets forth a behavioral pattern that his life exemplified, end of quote. Jesus was teaching his disciples, I am the purpose of the Old Testament. I think Jesus' point is that he is the messianic fulfillment of the signs, types, and shadows of Old Testament scripture. And implied in that He is the righteous fulfillment of every single command. D.A. Carson wrote this. The best interpretation of these difficult verses says that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets in that they point to him. And he is their fulfillment. The antithesis is not between abolish and keep, but between abolish and fulfill. Martin Luther captured the idea like this, saying, What purpose other than this proclamation does Scripture have from beginning to end? Messiah, God's Son, was to come and through His sacrifice as an innocent Lamb of God, bear and remove the sins of the world and thus redeem men from eternal death for eternal salvation. For the sake of Messiah and God's Son, Holy Scripture was written. And for His sake, everything that happened took place. Luther was right. And this is why Philip went to Nathanael and he said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is why on the road to Emmaus, Jesus helped 
his disciples understand his crucifixion and resurrection by beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreting to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is why right after the, the, that moment on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appeared to his disciples in Jerusalem and he taught them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then Luke added, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and that's the Old Testament scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Brothers and sisters, that is profoundly connected to Matthew 5, 17 and 18. When the Old Testament tells of the Messiah's suffering, crucifixion, resurrection, the, the repentance for forgiveness of sins and the proclamation of the gospel to all nations, it is telling of Jesus the Messiah, the fulfillment of those Old Testament gospel signs, types, and shadows, a fulfillment that the disciples witnessed. Understand that at the center of the entire law and gospel story of Scripture is the person and work of Jesus Christ who is the ultimate fulfillment of it all. The last chapter of Acts is enlightening. Paul preached the gospel to Jewish leaders in Rome, and, and what did he use? He used the law and the prophets, the law of Moses and the prophets, to convince them about Jesus Christ. He used the Old Testament to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, would it be worth it for you to drive 1,700 miles, see the sign which says Rocky Mountain National Park, and return home? Or would you rather see the sign, drive past the sign, and go, ooh, and ah, at the great Rocky Mountains themselves? The sign is great, but only in so much as it gets you to the better thing to which it points. The sign is still useful. We still want the sign there because it directs people to the better thing. Now, my sermon series on covenant theology really challenged some of you. Some of you didn't particularly enjoy it. Here's one place where that sermon series absolutely matters where we need that sermon series. Verses 18, 17 and 18 help you know how to read and understand and make connections in the Old Testament just as Jesus did. Now, there's a popular way of reading Scripture which puts theocratic national Israel at the center of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. We could call this an Israelocentric reading of Scripture, which is an invention of the 19th century didn't exist prior to then. Jesus looked deep within the Old Testament story and he saw himself as the apex of the entire story, as the fulfillment of the promises, as the fulfillment of the prophecies. Not Israel, but himself, 
the true and perfect Israel. If you look, just a, just a gentle shepherding challenge for you, if you look at the law and the prophets and your focus and your excitement are theocratic national Israel, you're looking at the base of the mountain and not at its beautiful and awe-inspiring summit. In other words, your head is down, it's not up. John Calvin said something profound in his commentary on Matthew 5. Please, please hang with this because it's so helpful. He said this, God had indeed promised a new covenant at the coming of Christ, but had at the same time showed that it would not be different from the first, but that on the contrary, its design was to give a perpetual sanction to the covenant which he had made from the beginning with his own people. Calvin meant that the new covenant is not entirely different from the old covenant, but rather designed to perpetually sanction the covenant of grace made from the beginning, which streams through the Old Testament right on into the New Testament. And Calvin then referenced Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34, and then he continued. By these words, he is so far from departing from the former covenant that on the contrary, he declares that it will be confirmed and ratified when it shall be succeeded by the new. This is also the meaning of Christ's words when he says that he came to fulfill the law. For he actually fulfilled it by quickening with his spirit the dead letter and then exhibiting in reality what had hereto appeared only in figures. Calvin meant that the Old Testament figures point to their reality and fulfillment, Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't abolish the law or the prophets. He confirmed and ratified them by showing himself to be their fulfillment. Think about the tree of life, the promise of the serpent slaying seed, Adam and Eve's leather clothes, the flood and rainbow, circumcision, the promised land, temporary theocratic national Israel, the Passover, the exodus and Red Sea crossing, the Ten Commandments and the stone tablets, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle and temple, the covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Israel, David, the judges and kings, the prophets. What was it all about? Jesus, Jesus, it was about Jesus. Look at the person and work of Jesus Christ and you are looking at the fulfillment and the apex of the law and the prophets. Verses, uh, verse 17 in particular helps you see the gospel in the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill all of scripture, third, Every single little stroke of Scripture will be accomplished. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And this verse, dear brothers and sisters, should just totally boost your confidence in sacred Scripture. This is such a good verse. The word truly makes this emphatic. Jesus is punching it out there, and in, and in the coming weeks, we're going to hear Jesus say a lot, I say to you, I say to you, I say to you. He's going to say that a lot. He'll say it 11 more times in the Sermon on the Mount. After that, he'll say it 24 or 25 more times in Matthew. The scribes and the Pharisees 
They knew the law. And they knew the prophets better than anyone else. And everyone knew that they knew it better than everyone else. But Jesus showed up and he presented himself as the preeminent and authoritative interpreter and teacher of the Old Testament, of the Scripture. You have heard that it was said, I say to you, Jesus spoke with such authority. They had never heard authority like his. He knew what it meant, and he was about to tell them. The point of verse 18 is that Jesus has complete confidence in every little detail of the law and the prophets. Not even a little stroke of the pen of Scripture will fail. Have you ever thought about what would happen if all of a sudden one day the laws of physics stop working? Huh. That's a scary thought, kids. That's a nightmare. My son is like, yes, that would be awful. What if just one day, kids, the world just, boom, blew up? All right? Do you sit around worrying about that? See, I don't. I don't think normal people do. I mean, maybe the people with the uh, tinfoil hats, you know, the type, maybe. But I just don't worry about that. Christ is upholding the universe with the word of his power. We're okay, folks. You can take off the little hats and all of that and... Take your lawn chair back inside. Everything's going to be okay. But, but it would be more likely for the universe to all of a sudden explode than for even one little pen stroke of Scripture to fail. As sure as God will bring the sun over the horizon tomorrow morning, God will accomplish every single nuance of his promises, prophecies, precepts, laws, commands, statutes, decrees, everything. You can trust Scripture more than scientific and natural laws, more than the scientific theory. They will fail before the Word of God fails. According to Jesus, you have absolutely no logical reason whatsoever to doubt the reliability and authority of anything, even down to the small little stroke of the pen in Scripture. An iota is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet, kind of like our English I, if you can picture that. And, and a dot or stroke is a little serif, a little hook on a letter, kind of like the dot above our English I. There were little dots or strokes in Hebrew writings that distinguish uh, one letter from another. And just a, just a tiny little slash of the pen and Jesus means that not even a tiny, little, minute dot of the letter of the law or the prophets will fail to be accomplished. It will all come to pass. Every promise, every covenant, every law, every command, every iota, every dot, all of it. If we actually trust Jesus, we must trust what Jesus trusts. He trusted the entirety of the Old Testament. Jesus believed Psalm 119, verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Jesus believed Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus believed Isaiah 55, verse 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. If God's Son has complete and utter trust in Scripture, what reason do you and I have to doubt any of it? What reason is there? What good reason? 
But what about all those ceremonial and civil laws that we no longer obey? Didn't Jesus abolish those? Well, once again, Calvin is very helpful. He explained, with respect to ceremonies, there is some appearance of a change having taken place. But, but it was only the use of them that was abolished, for their meaning was more fully confirmed. The coming of Christ has taken nothing away, even from ceremonies, but on the contrary, confirms them, exhibiting the truth of shadows, exhibiting the truth of shadows. For when we see their full effect, we acknowledge that they are not vain or useless. Jesus abolished ceremonial and civil laws in practice, but not in principle. Jesus is the full truth of them. They were the shadows. He is the substance. So when we read Leviticus now, with the fullness of Christ in view, the shadows of Leviticus still point us to the full truth of Jesus Christ. And in some cases, because Jesus fulfilled the law, new practices replace old practices while still upholding the principles of the law. Stay with me here. Passover has been abolished in practice, yet observing the Lord's Supper upholds the principle of the law. Circumcision has been abolished, but baptism upholds the principle of the law. Animal sacrifices have been abolished, but offering yourself daily as a living sacrifice to God upholds the principle of the law. Of course, some things have changed from the old covenant to the new covenant, but the covenant of grace remains and the law has not been abolished. Rather, every single pen stroke of the law will be accomplished. So then we need to ask the question, what is the principle or the spirit behind all those ceremonial and civil laws? The answer is love. Love. Love of God and love of neighbor. That's what's behind it all. Even the weird stuff. Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he added this, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Add up the hundreds of law, laws from the law and the prophets, and behind them all you have two commands, love God, love your neighbor. Jesus fulfilled them all. Fulfilled them all by loving God and loving, loving neighbor Completely and entirely. Every commandment, promise, prophecy, every pen stroke of Scripture will be accomplished because Christ is their fulfillment. How was Jesus so sure and confident about Scripture? Well, because God sent him on a mission that he was destined to complete. Jesus knew God's eternal covenant of redemption and he came to get it done. That's why he came. Wasn't going to fail at any of it. Jesus' confidence in Scripture is Jesus' confidence in God, in His sovereignty, in His plan, in His redemption. Now, verses 19 and 20 are what they are because verses 17 and 18 are what they are. Fourth, Scripture should be cherished and obeyed and never belittled, 
undermined, doubted, or ignored. Listen to Jesus' zeal for God's law. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. God requires obedience to his perfect law. Every violation is serious. And yet some commandments are weightier than others. Later in Matthew 23, Jesus told the Pharisees, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. There were weightier matters of the law. But rather than lessening the importance of obeying the law, Jesus was emphasizing enthusiastic obedience. Don't relax, don't loose, don't annul, don't repeal even the smallest of the commandments. Obey them all for God's glory is the idea. Well, think about how valuable verses 19 and 20 would have been to 12 disciples as they went out on the great commission to preach and to teach and establish the new covenant church. The law and gospel were at the center of the apostles' preaching and teaching ministry. One time, Jesus' disciples argued about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Interesting. Perhaps they should have remembered verses 19 and 20 and the preeminence and authority of Jesus as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the fulfillment of verses 19 and 20. He has supremacy in teaching. He has supremacy in obedience. He has supremacy in the kingdom of heaven. He relaxed nothing ever. Not for one minute did he relax God's law. And he taught others to revere God's law at every last turn. Move over, Muhammad Ali. Jesus is the greatest. At the end of chapter 5, what does Jesus teach the disciples? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Whoa. And Jesus showed them what that perfection is like in himself, in his own life. Jesus cherished Scripture. He obeyed Scripture and he never belittled it, he never undermined it, he never, never doubted it, and never ignored it. He fulfilled it. If you love Jesus, you love what Jesus loves. And as you can see, Jesus loves Scripture. Fifth, Scripture exposes our sin, guilt, and desperate need of God's grace and presents the perfect righteousness of Christ as our salvation. Verse 20, you can only imagine how they would have heard this. Like, whoa, what is he saying? Verse 20 likely blew their minds. Jesus said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That was a very scary statement. I'd imagine their hearts probably sunk. What in the, how are we getting there? The scribes and Pharisees were law scholars. They were the professionals. They were the experts. They were the authorities on this, the most righteous among men. And Jesus made heaven sound completely out of reach. And folks, it was. It was out of reach. 
Jesus said the righteousness heaven demands is a righteousness which surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their righteousness, their religious zeal and all of that fell short of what heaven demanded. It wasn't good enough. The problem with the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was that it was only external. It was external conformity to the law wherein they found their righteousness and good standing with God. But not only was their external conformity insufficient, their hearts were hard and they were far from God. They had no righteousness. Leon Morris said, the Pharisees put a tremendous emphasis on the letter of the law, but Jesus was looking for something very different from the Pharisaic standard. For them, it was a matter of observing regulations and softening them where possible. But for him, it was keeping the commandments in depth. He taught a radical obedience. Jesus Christ taught a radical obedience above that of the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus demanded internal righteousness, which only he had. When the heart is righteous, well, then obviously the life is going to be righteous. And therein is the problem for everyone, sinners and scribes and Pharisees. No one has eternal righteousness except one. The scribes and Pharisees prided themselves on being more righteous than everyone else, but Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, two, uh, James, rather, 2, verse 10, says this, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Even the scribes and Pharisees were guilty of the entire law, but their problem was they didn't see it. They didn't recognize it. They didn't admit it. They didn't admit their guilt. They didn't admit their poverty of spirit. And they did not mourn their sin. They were too busy justifying themselves. And Leon Morris added, the Pharisees were almost universally praised in Jesus' day and were regarded as outstanding examples of people who lived by the law of God. Jesus warns his hearers that the Pharisaic way is the wrong way. If they are to enter the kingdom of God, they must come by a different way. He does not say at this point how the Messiah will produce this righteousness in his people, only that it must be produced. The Pharisaic way is the wrong way. Are you hearing this consistent message at Jerusalem Church that the Pharisaic way, the way of law-keeping as your form of righteousness is the wrong way? That's not the gospel way. That's not the Christ way. The law cannot justify us. We need a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Do you understand what Jesus was doing? He was destroying, not the law, but the common religious assumptions of the day, the wrong conclusions about the law. The scribes and Pharisees and their external conformity to regulations were wrong, all wrong, because they failed to see their own poverty of spirit and their lack of righteousness. The law demands perfect righteousness of the heart and of the life. And Jesus was in the process of revealing to them very tenderly and beautifully the perfect inward righteousness of his heart and life. Jesus would 
teach them the radical depravity of human hearts, but he would also give them the gospel in the gift of his righteousness imputed to them by faith. He fulfilled all righteousness before their very eyes. They were watching it unfold. The the law and the prophets expose our sin, our guilt, and desperate need of God's grace, but they also prevent Uh, present to us the perfect righteousness of Christ as our salvation. The law is what he lived. By teaching the law and the prophets rightly, Jesus also showed the righteousness of his own heart and that he alone is righteous and he alone is the gate of heaven. Lastly, if we love Jesus, we love what Jesus loves. And brothers and sisters, Jesus loves scripture and righteousness. Jesus showed his love and esteem of the law, and he began to show them his own righteousness under the law. He's living it out. Jesus loves being righteous, so precious to him, and that's why he fulfilled all righteousness, even if it meant enduring a horrific cross and the wrath of Almighty God. He was going to stay true to be righteous. His heart beat righteousness for the glory of God and his own happiness. So let me ask, what is true faith? As we process all this, what is true faith? Is your your faith true faith? What is true faith? Heidelberg 21 says this, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. Jesus accepted as true all that God revealed in scripture. The question is, do you? All of it, every single last stroke of Scripture, you believe because it's God-breathed. If you love Jesus, you'll believe that. And since Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, if you love Jesus, you will also love righteousness, love living righteously. You will love his righteousness under the law, and you will love living righteously like him by the power of the Holy Spirit, which he so graciously provides you every day to do what he calls you to do. Those who love God's law and righteousness least are those who love Jesus least. Loving Jesus and loving, uh, loving to live according to God's law, they're inseparable. Psalm 119 expresses the love of righteousness really well, and Jesus fulfilled this love of righteousness and calls you to the same. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us love the law of God and righteousness so that we may not stumble. Let us love Christ, love scripture, and love righteousness. And let us love by the love that God has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Love Jesus, love scripture, love righteousness.